Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We're not done with Ephesians 4 yet, but we're done with this segment of it. And very quickly review. These are verses that I really felt the Lord direct me to early this year and show me that this is the blueprint for where God wants to work within this church right now. I believe with all my heart that what God, in fact, I know He has, God has spoke speaking to us that, in fact, He told me a, a while ago, and I shared with this with a, with, uh, we had a workers meeting yesterday, that God spoke to me a number of months ago and says, your job is not to build a church. Your job is to train people to reach people. And as you train them and as they reach people, then I'll build my church. And that's so important because a pastor can get focused on the four walls of the building, can get focused on, you know, all the issues of running a church and of preparing messages, and, and, and which is all focused in here and not realize that although God loves us, of course He does, but His heart is out there also. Every day we drive past people. Every day we maybe sit in a coffee shop or in a restaurant or work with people that are hurting and that we may not pick that up, but God knows their life. He knows what they're going through. He's heard them crying out at night, asking for help, and we may well be His answer. But if we don't know how to recognize that, and if we don't know what to do in those situations, then we'll pass them by. And God is training us so that we go out to wherever we are. When Lafayette Scales was here earlier this year, he finished his wonderful series speaking to this church out of Ezekiel, the prophecy of the river flowing out of the temple and speaking that that's where this church was to go, is to flow outward. But God began to say before, to me, before you can flow outward, you've got to become strong inward. You've got to strengthen the roots and strengthen the base. And that's what Ephesians 4, 1 through 16 is really all about. We're not going to go through and read all of that right now, but I want to just read towards the end of it. We'll start in verse 11, and this is where we've been focusing. And He Himself gave some. These are gifts He's given to the church. And these are gifts He's given to Faith Christian Center. Some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Those gifts are given to the church, verse 12, for the equipping of the saints. We've looked at the word equipping and saw that it means, first of all, it means to heal and mend. It was used, a word used to refer to mending of nets. So, that you, to, uh, so it's the mending. So in many ways, this is a hospital. People come in here with their lives broken, come in here with hurting. Some have come in here from ministry before, and they've been hurt, and they sit here and they heal. Some have come in just fresh saved, and, but their lives are broken through situations. And God wants to heal us and make us whole and make us well. And the second aspect of that word equipping means to give to, them, give to, to you the, and us the equipment that we need to go do what we're called to do. And so these gifts are given to equip the saints, and we discovered that that's all of us, so that we, the saints, might do the work of the ministry. We've talked about that work of the ministry, what that means, and different samples of that ministries, that we're all called into the ministry. And those ministries are for the edifying or the building up of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect, that word means mature, man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, And this verse 14 is where we've been dwelling over these last months. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the cunning craftiness and deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into Him who is the head, Christ, and from whom the whole body, that's all of us, joined and knit together by which every joint supplies. You're one of those joints. You're one of those joints that knits one part of the body together with another part according to the effective working part, working by which each part does its share. So this morning when we hear an announcement that we need help in the media department, when we need help in the hospitality department, that's not a call because we're in need. That's a declaration of an opportunity that somewhere out there, there's a part of the body here that fits in that place. And that may well be you. And that you, what we sometimes do is we look at ourselves and our qualifications. God doesn't choose you on your qualifications. He chooses you on your willingness. He chooses you on your openness. And He'll qualify you. 
So somewhere in the body here, there's a piece not where it belongs. And if your physical body has a part that's not where it belongs, there's something wrong with you. You don't function well. You get worn out. I learned a long time ago because I had a back injury years and years ago and went to a chiropractor. And he said, the problem you're going to have is not with the side of your back you're injured. The problem you're going to have is with the other side because now that side tries to compensate for, the, compensate for the weakness on your right side and now that side will get strained. So you have to be careful of that. So if one part of the body is not performing what it's supposed to, that puts strain on the other part, which means the body itself is not functioning in health. And that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. Just thought I'd use that as an opportunity for a plug. Praise God. No, it's the truth. Which every joint supplies to the effective working by which every part does its share, and the result is it causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. But part of this maturing process, and this is where we've been in, in chapter, verse 14, is that we should no longer be children. And one of the signs of children is they're carried about by every wind of doctrine. And now turn over to James chapter 1. James chapter 1 we see in verse, I think it's verse 6, the same principle. There we are. Right before that he said, He who lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally and without reproach. It will be given to him. So if you ask, it will be given to you. But, verse 6, he must ask in faith with nothing Doubting. For he who doubts, look at this, is like the wave driven of the sea, tossed by the wind. Let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded, unstable in all his ways. What we've been talking about is maturing. Maturing as a Christian, the process of maturing comes through eating God's Word, absorbing God's Word taking God's Word and spending time in it, not just reading it. We use the parallel that if you just read God's Word and you don't meditate on it and you don't, you don't, you don't apply it in your life, it's like eating food and then spitting it back out. You get the taste of it, but your body doesn't get the benefit of it. If you simply read the Word and you go through a reading plan for the purpose of completing a reading plan, if you read verses to say, I read my Bible today, that's just like eating food and then spitting it out. You tasted something that tasted good, but it doesn't have a lasting effect on you. It doesn't change your body. It doesn't, it doesn't help your, the health of your body. Why? Because it has to get in your body in order to produce in your body. The same is true of the Word of God. It's not just reading it. You must begin to meditate on it. Think about it. I was awake last night for a little while, and as I lay there, I just started running scriptures around in my mind and running scriptures. One of two things is going to happen. Either I'm going to get bored and fall asleep, which is okay, or I'm going to meditate on God's Word, which is even better. So I can't lose. So I do that, and I do that in the car. I'll sing songs about it. So it's chewing on God's Word. But then we discovered the third step is you've got to read the Word, you've got to meditate on the Word, but then you've got to act on the Word. And that's what we've really been talking about. Because the sign, the, the benefit of having received God's Word and act God's Word, then what's going to happen is that Word's going to get challenged. And then you have a choice to make. And that's really what we've been talking about. Because here we see, we see in, in Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul talks about one of the signs that I need to grow and mature is that I'm easily moved by circumstances. In that case, it's wind and do, it's doctrines that come along. And so you get people following the latest doctrine that's coming along. You know, brother so-and-so is teaching on this. And so we all, you know, we, we went to Bible school in Tulsa, which if you don't know, it is spiritual Disneyland. It is. I mean, every major big speaker comes through that area. And boy, when we were there, they were coming through and we lived near a place, the school we were at where we attended, they had lots of these in. But at that time, they didn't have a church. We belonged to a church 45 minutes away. And so there'd be a big-name speaker across the street. But we went to church that night where we were committed because that's where God had assigned us. But there were many people we knew that would blow from one church to another based on who was speaking that night. And the problem is they never get rooted. And their whole idea of their Christian experiences, it's like, it's, it's, you know what it's really like? It's like going to rock concerts. Not that I've ever been to one, but you follow the latest star because that's the thing to do. 
And that's what Paul talks about in, in, in 1 Corinthians 3. He said that's what the church in Corinth was doing. Some were saying, oh, we're of a Paul. He's wonderful. And so they say, no, he's kind of tough. We like Apollos. And Paul says, who are we? It's God that causes the increase. And so that's one of the signs of immaturity is we're easily moved by things. And what we've been talking about is we're easily moved by circumstances. So we come to church, we open our Bible, whether at home or in church, we see the principles, we start declaring God's Word, and we decide we're going to stand on that promise of God, and life happens. <laughs> and all of you know, the devil and all his demons don't just lay down and say, oh, they found the Word of God. They found God's promise that by His stripes you're healed. They found God's promise that He'll supply all your needs. <gasps> we'll finish with them. Let's go find somebody else. Oh no, then when the attack is on. We went back and looked in Genesis chapter 3 and saw He did this from the very beginning. Because when He comes into the garden, to, what His whole goal is to pull Eve and Adam out of God's will. And what does He do? He comes to get her to doubt what God said. His first words is, Has God said. And then we saw that the fact when she entertained the thought, she opened the door to doubt, just a crack, and he came in boldly because his next words are to directly challenge God's Word. Satan knows that he has to challenge God's Word in your life because he understands that if that Word gets planted down in your heart and you act on that Word, it is God's authority flowing through you and out of you and He is no match for God's authority. He's an easy match for you but He's no match for God's authority flowing through you. So when we stand on God's Word and we act on God's Word and we declare God's Word with boldness over the circumstances of our life and over other situations, then God's authority of that Word is allowed, comes, flows through you and out of your mouth into that situation. And that's what He can't afford for you to discover. So what does He do? His only weapon is to throw circumstances at you, to get you to be moved off of God's Word. And circumstances always come at you through your senses. And we talked about the fact that what happens when, when you get, maybe it's a, a report from the doctor, or you may get a, 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 a bill that you didn't expect, or whatever it may be. It comes at you through your senses, and now your mind has to put that information together and come up with a conclusion of what that's going to mean for you. And our minds are just are the best computer ever made. It's able to do that just like that. And I've shared with you before I had removed, yeah, renewed my mind to God's Word. I had a fear of, of hospitals. And I, you know, if, if, if I got a pain and it lasted for more than 20 minutes, my mind was capable within a matter of a half an hour of picturing myself in a hospital with tubes coming out of me. And I told you the story of a Friday afternoon. I came home. I had a doc physical the day before. I came home. I, I come home from work, check the answering machine. There's a message from the doctor's office. Say, please call us Monday morning. That's all the message was. But it was too late to call him back and find out. What, what, by Monday morning, I'm a, I'm a wreck. Oh, my gosh. It must be cancer. I don't know what it is because I didn't understand how to control my mind at the time. And all it was is they lost a sample and they wanted to take a blood sample again. That's it. But our minds are capable of that. And un Satan understands that. So he throws circumstances at you. But, but what we've got to learn to do is to stand on God's Word and we've got to learn where the battle is. And that's what we've been learning. Because one of the signs of ensuring is circumstances don't move me. We saw the Apostle Paul. They didn't move him. That wasn't what so at the beginning. But as he, as he grew in his maturity, circumstances, even when they stoned him to death, it didn't stop him. He accomplished God's will. And that's where we want to grow into. So that's what we looked at. We saw in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus, the devil even came to Jesus to take the word from Jesus. So who do we think we are? That he wouldn't do it with us. But we saw a difference between how Jesus handled it and how Eve handled it. Jesus didn't debate it. He didn't defend. See, she tried to defend God. He, he just simply said, it is written. He let God's Word defend itself. Whatever came at Him, He just said, it is written. No more and no less. Then we began to look at examples 
of some people that did this and some people that fa- did it and failed and some people that, that, excuse me, they didn't do it and failed and some people that did stand on that word and were not moved and they succeeded. We saw the children of Israel coming out of Egypt and we saw how they came to the edge of the promised land. They had God's word that he was giving that land to them but they went and they had to check it out in their senses to verify that what God told them was the truth. And when they opened that door of doubt, what we saw happen is they came back and although they said, yes, what God said is true, but there's things that our senses saw, our eyes saw, that tell us that we can't. We're we're like grasshoppers in their sight. So they weren't able to enter into the destiny that God had for them. Then we spent the last two weeks looking at a young man. I love him. David, King David. Of course, he wasn't king yet. He comes onto the scene of this great scene of this battle. On one side we see the, the, the Philistines, and on the other side the army of Israel. And we see that on the Philistine side there's this ten-foot giant comes out with all the armor on him, and he makes every morning and every night, he tells them who they are. And, and, and the, the trained soldiers listen to his report. And the more they listen to it, the more they believe it, because faith comes by hearing. And they develop tremendous faith in who he said they were. And as a result, they shrunk back in fear. Then this little teenager shows up. And he says, what's going on here? He said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? He saw the scene in very different terms. He saw it in terms of what God had said to Abraham back in Genesis 17 when he said, I've made a covenant with you to be God to you which means to protect you and provide for you. And the mark of that covenant is that every male shall be circumcised on the eighth day of their life. So he looks at this Philistine and says, he doesn't have that mark. Therefore, God did not make a covenant with him. This army has that mark. Therefore, God has made a covenant with them to be God to them. So it's not Israel that Goliath has defied, but it's the God who said he's in covenant with them. He better watch out. Who is he? compared to the God. See, the Israelites compared the enemy to themselves. And that's what the devil wants you to do. He wants you to compare the circumstances to yourself and your strength and your experience instead of compare the circumstances to God and the promise He's made in His Word to you. It's how what you do with this evidence. It's what you do up here that determines whether God's destiny in your life will come about or whether it will not. And there's more at stake with whether God's destiny comes about in your life than whether you're blessed and happy. Because there's people that God wants you to influence that will not be fully influenced if you do not step into the fullness of the destiny that God has for you and He has for for us together in this body. And we saw how because of that, how David came at Goliath. And he didn't come at him, he didn't come at him with fear. He ran at him. That The king offered to give him his armor. And he says, I don't have confidence in your armor. I have confidence in the God who's in covenant with me against that uncircumcised Philistine. And I showed you how David took a stone and threw it in the air. And it had to be that God picked that stone up and drove that stone down into the giant's head because he had a brass helmet on. And it says it buried in his helmet and we saw that that stone had to go over the shield bearer to get into his helmet. And so God took that stone, I believe with all my heart, and buried that stone in that giant's head. And everything David said would come about, came about because David said words that were consistent with the promise that God had said. So although there was a 10-foot giant telling him what was going to happen, calling him a dog, saying that he, was, he had, was helpless. David wasn't moved by what he heard. David was only moved by what God had said about him and about that situation. And some of you are facing giants today. We talked about that last week. And those giants are talking to you, telling them you're going to devour you. Who are you to stand against that giant? But who you are is a child of the living God. Who you are is a God that's not just in covenant, a child that's a person not just in covenant with God, you're God's child. And His Spirit and His anointing is in you. Paul, in, in, in correcting, disciplining the church at Corinth, told them that they were acting like mere men. When we think of ourselves as mere men and mere women, that's not, that's not how God says we're to think of ourselves. 
We're children of the living God. Now, we can't go marching off in our own plans, in our own strength, just because we're the children of God. We've got to stand on His Word, just as Jesus did. All right, now turn with me to Luke chapter 5. We're going to look at a final story. And this, to me, just condenses the story down and brings it all into focus. While you're turning there, I just want to review a couple little things. It's interesting because in Ephesians it says that you're no longer blown around by every wind of doctrine. James says that if you're, that you're, uh, you're a double-minded man, if you doubt you're double-minded, you're unstable in all your ways. In Romans chapter 4 verse 20 talking about Abraham's faith, it says he staggered not in unbelief. So the idea that comes from the Word of God is that if we're, move, if we're looking at the circumstances to tell us what's going to happen, we are going to stagger or be double-minded or be unstable or be easily blown around. And that's a mark that I need to mature and grow in God's Word. Whereas when I'm mature, I'm sta- I, nothing moves me. No matter what the, what the stock market does, I don't need to look at CNN to know what my day's going to be like. My future is not determined by whether the stock market goes up or the stock market goes down. My future is not determined. Somehow, and I don't know, it was God's grace. Somehow it got instilled in me as an early young Christian that God was my source. Now that was easy when I was working in a large law firm and making two and a half times what I could, we spent every week, month. It was another thing when I walked out of that office to move 1,600 miles away to go to Bible school, had no job and discovered we had two kids on the way we didn't know were coming but it didn't move me. I felt just as calm, just as peaceful in that circumstance as I did when I had the large paycheck coming in because that law firm was not my source. Now, you, go, you don't do foolish things. Right? Don't do foolish things. That's called presumption. That's when you step out on something God didn't say. You step out on something you said, not something God said. But I know God told us to go to Bible school. Made it clear to me. And then, of course, he did provide a job. He provided everything we, we needed. But I could do that because I didn't, didn't need to hold on to that big paycheck at the end of the month. We got paid monthly. Paycheck at the end of the month because that firm was not my source. God was my source. He's your source today. Praise the Lord. Praise God. All right. Luke chapter 5. Oh, this is a great story. This is a great story. Start in verse 1. So it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God. To hear what? The word of God. That he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. That's the Sea of Galilee. He saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them, for they were washing their nets. Now, I'm not a fisherman either with nets or with a rod and reel. But what I understand of fishing, especially this type of fishing in their day, is they washed their nets when they were done, not before they started. Can you understand? That makes sense? Why would you wash your nets and then take them out in the salt water or whatever the water's like? You wash your nets to clean them after you finish. So they've obviously come back from fishing. The second thing we need to understand here is they fished at night because it was at night that they caught fish. So they've come back in because the time for fishing is over, and we're going to see they caught nothing. So they pull their nets up, they're washing their nets, inspecting their nets, they're going to hang them up to dry, and there's the boats are, are right there at the shore of the lake. And Jesus comes along now, and He is going to preach God's Word to them. So what He does... Verse 3, he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, who later becomes Peter, and asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. 
Now, it doesn't tell us why, and it's probably not important why, but one of the reasons is sound travels much better over water than it does over land. I remember as a young boy, my, I had an uncle who, who we, my mother's family lived in Maine, and he built little sailboats and things, and he had a little camp in it with a cove. And we were out, he was teaching me how to sail out in this sailboat that he built. And, and we were out there, I don't know, a couple hundred yards from shore, and I heard his next-door neighbors talking about us, <laughs> which taught me a lesson. When I'm out in a boat, be careful. There may be ears listening that you don't intend to hear. And it, I realized at that early age, this principle that sound travels over water very well. Now understand, they didn't have PA systems, they didn't have fancy mics, they didn't have any. So Jesus had to project His voice and communicate to a large crowd. So He would go out in the boat, sit in there, and He preached His sermon. He preached God's Word to them. All right. He sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. And when he stopped speaking... Now, so here, the purpose of this story is obviously not to tell us the message he was teaching them. So there's another purpose to the story other than to hear, listen in on Jesus' sermon to these multitude because Luke skips it. And he goes to what happened afterwards. And when he stopped speaking, he said to Simon... Launch out in the deep and let down your nets for a catch or to catch some fish. So here we go. We're going we're to bring this story under the analysis, the thought process that we've been learning. The thought process is this. God says something, either in His written word or speaks to you directly. But we're talking about His written word at this point because that we know He spoke. When he speaks it to you, you've got to deal with the issue of was that God or was that me or was it pizza from last night or what was it. But when you see it in his word, you can grab hold of it with both hands. So the process is we see it in God's word. Now circumstances come to our senses to tell us something contrary to what God's word has said. And we have to make a choice of which one we're going to believe, what God tells me or what my senses are telling me and how my mind is interpreting it. And every, listen to me carefully, every situation you go through in life that involves God's Word always involves this analysis and this process. If you can learn to go through this analysis, it's very simple when a situation arises because they don't present themselves to you in a nice outline analytical form. One of the things that I learned, one of the things of purposes of law school is I just learned this before actually before I went to law school. The purpose of a, of a good law school is not to teach you the law, it's to teach you how to think differently, to renew your mind to the process that that judge is going to use when you go stand before him. And the training is designed in such a way so when a client comes into your office and that client starts to tell their story, they're not going to tell it in a legally organized pattern. They're going to blurt out what's happened to them. Maybe from the beginning to the end, maybe in terms of what they want, Maybe they're just going to express their anger or frustration at this guy they want you to take to the cleaners. So you have to listen to the story and then you've got to take all the elements and put them into the elements that the law requires in order for them to win. i got a better example. I went to Starbucks one day. You all know what Starbucks is? It's where they give you 14,000 choices. Now, I go in there, and I'm, I'm easy. I want a small black coffee, and they give me this big smile. My wife has a list of requirements that's about that long. I know somebody else that does, and they have them written down on a card, so when you go get her wife, they just, here, it's what it is. Now, I'm watching this process, and I watch somebody else give them, you know, the size and all different kinds of things. Then my wife gave it to them in a different order. And I'm saying, how do you handle that? And they said, we're trained, no matter what order you give things in, 
we listen to the size first. We listen next to whether it's decaf or regular. We never next to whether it's hot or cold. They've been trained a thought process to take all that information you get about cream, no cream, 1%, 2%, you know, soy, not soy, whatever it is, all that data that you give to them, they've been trained how to listen to it and pick it out in an order that they can now remember and then go fill that order and you get everything that you asked for. That's an analysis that you learn. You train your mind to think that way. And that's what I want you to learn. Because the circumstances of life don't come to you tall, decaf, hot, room for milk. It doesn't come at you in that order. It comes at you blurted out at you. And what we do is we react, we react to the evidence that comes to us and many times don't even consult what God said about it. The very first thing you need to learn to do is once that comes at you is step back and say, okay, what does God say? Well, in order to do that, you have got to put in you what God said. And we talked about that before. It's like the old jukeboxes. Remember that? I told you about the jukeboxes where you go to... That really dates me because everything's... MP3, that stuff now, where you'd go and you look down a list and you'd say, I want this song. You'd put your quarter in or nickel, whatever it was. You'd put it in and you'd hit J12. And this arm went up. J comes and pulled it out and flipped it over and put it on. And I'm thinking of a 45. That really dates me. <laughs> but it can't pull, it, listen to me, it can't pull out a record and play it that they didn't put in there. The Spirit of God's one of His jobs is to pull out of you the record that needs to play when the circumstances come up. He can only pull out what you have put in there. And so we're assuming you're putting it in. So the analysis is, i got to go to what... I gotta, all right, this is all... Understand, it comes at your senses and it can be overwhelming. Your emotion... But your Oh, this is good. Your emotions are, are tied directly to your thoughts. Used to teach a course here on, uh, uh, on renewing your mind, and one of the exercises I took the students through because it's hard to accept that until you've experienced it is your th- emotions are a result of your thoughts. Now we can have thoughts just like that, so your emotion can—I'll prove it to you. Suppose it's a Sunday morning, and you're getting ready for church, and you're running late, and you and your spouse are in the middle of—let's put it this way. Um, an emotionally charged discussion. <laughs> and the phone rings. And you say, oh, no, who is it? And you pick it up, and it's me. <laughs> what happens to that emotionally charged moment? It changes, doesn't it? Why? What circumstance changed? Nothing. Your spouse didn't suddenly sprout wings and a halo, what happened? Your thought pattern changed because now your thought is, what would Pastor John think if he knew what was going on here? And your emotions follow your thoughts. So when the circumstances come at you, growling at you, threatening you, it's not that that moves you, it's what you choose to think about them. See, when God made you in His image, because we go back to Genesis 1, it says, and God made them after His image. Of all of the creation that's listed in Genesis 1 and then again in Genesis 2, man is the only creation that it said was made after His image. And I believe with all my heart that what that's referring to is not just hands and toes and feet and eyes and ears, but it's referring to this. God, what makes God different from everything else in creation is He has a will. He has the power to choose and He gave that power to choose to man. That's why He can hold us responsible. So we have the, the right and the responsibility and the power to choose how we respond to everything that happens. No one can make you feel a certain way. 
they can do things that encourage you to go that way. We have this expression, oh, they press my buttons. There's only one button I have here. And it's not one somebody can press and I react. What happens is someone says to you something, something to you, you choose. Now the choice, you may have trained yourself through years of responding that way or reacting that way so you don't think a lot about it, but it's a choice you've made. And so when this evidence, this threat comes at you, growling at you, telling you what's going to happen, you have a choice to make of whether you're going to agree with that or you're going to go and agree with what God said. That's the first choice. When, this, when you realize that this, this is, circumstances are coming at you, to step back and say, okay, but what does God say about that? What is God's Word? Now that you've recognized what God's Word says about it and you've recognized what the circumstances are trying to tell you and the only place they're talking to you is in your own head. That's good news. You don't have to change a bunch of circumstances. You just have to change what you think about them. And then you decide, now you've decided God's Word. Now the next step is to, and not doubt in your heart. But believe that what you said in agreement with God's Word would come to pass. That's Mark eleven twenty three. Again, the same principle. Now let's watch how a man, Peter, handles the same thing. We now see that Jesus has used his boat. We see that he's been out fishing all night, come back, caught nothing. And now... Jesus says to him, Peter, take your boat, go back out in the deep and throw your net down for a catch. He didn't say go out and throw your net down and let's see if there are any fish out there. He said, take your boat, go out in the deep, throw your net down and pull in a catch of fish. That's what Jesus said. Now, here's what Peter's got to deal with. He's just come back from there. He's been out there. It's not like he has to guess whether there are any fish out there or not. He's just come back. They're not out there. So his, his, his sense knowledge is in his mind is telling him, that's crazy. You know there are no fish out there. You just saw that there are no fish out there. Your eyes saw when you pulled that net up and your arms felt it came up without any weight in it. You felt in your arms, no fish. You saw with your eyes, no fish. When you came back, there were no fish in the net. And everybody else saw it. So his senses are still speaking to him saying, it doesn't make sense because we know there's no fish out there because we've seen there's no fish out there. We felt when we lifted the nets up there were no fish out there. But it's more than that. What's Peter's profession? He's a fisherman. What's Jesus' profession? He's a carpenter. So you've got a carpenter... telling a fisherman how to fish. Now, we know Peter wasn't shy. We know Peter had a a boldness and a confidence in himself that he wasn't afraid to just blurt things out and say what was on his mind. We know that Peter had a degree of pride, and don't start pointing fingers at him, because we deal with some of those same issues ourselves. Because we know that Peter would always had to be the first to do things. Peter was the one that told Jesus that he was the Son of God when Peter, Jesus asked him, and Peter was proud of the self, fact that he, Jesus complimented him. But then a few verses later, Peter puts his foot in his mouth again by saying, no, don't, don't go to the cross. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't listen to him? Peter was the one that when Jesus was washing everybody's feet, had to say something. They were already being taught a lesson. 
And Peter has to say something by saying, No, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to wash my feet. I'm worse than all the rest of these, which is a form of pride. Humility can actually be a form of pride, the wrong kind of humility. And then when Jesus said, Well, if I don't wash your feet, you can't be with me, Peter has to go to the other extreme. Well, then I want to be different than everybody else. Give me a bath all over. And Jesus says, No, you just have to be like everybody else. So we know Peter wasn't shy. Now, his, his senses tell him, no fish. But his training tells him, it's not the time to fish. It's not just that we've come back and we know they're not there. They weren't there last night when it was the time to fish. But you're, you're a carpenter. Why are you telling me how to fish? Because I know this is not the time of day that you catch fish. That had to be going on in his mind, the same way when circumstances arise in your life, those kinds of thoughts go on in your mind. No way that can happen. I've never seen it happen before. Why would I think that I could go through this year without catching the flu? Everybody catches the flu. And yet, Psalm 91 says, a thousand may fall at one side and ten thousand other. It's not coming near me. Just because it happens to everybody else doesn't mean it has to happen to you. But that doesn't make sense to our natural mind. But that's what God's Word says. So Peter's got these thoughts going through his mind and he has a choice to make. Let's look at his choice. Verse 5. See, Simon, he's not afraid to say it. Simon answered and said to him, Master, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. In other words, we've worked hard. We know there are no fish out there. But he's got a choice to make. And look at the rest of this verse. This should be, <clears throat> this should be engraved on the inside of your eyelids. Nevertheless, 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 I know there are no fish out there because my senses tell me there's no fish out there. I know it doesn't make sense to go back out now because it's not the time you catch fish. My experience and my training tells me it won't work. My senses tell me it won't work. But on this side, I have your word. Now I have to make a choice. Am I going to listen to what my senses tell me? Am I going to rely on what my experiences tell me? Or am I going to make as an act of my will, no matter what my mind's telling me, to simply step out and do it because you said to do it? Nevertheless, nevertheless means that regardless of what I've been thinking, regardless of what I know, I'm going to put all of that aside and I'm going to act as if what you said is true. That was the first choice he made. The second choice he makes, which is just as important, verse 6, and when... They had done this. So not only did he hear the word, not only did he make the choice in spite of what his senses told him and his experience told him, he made the choice, I believe that your word is the truth even though that's not what I see and that's not what I'm thinking and it's not what my experience tells me, but that would not have caught fish. He still had to get into the boat, go out to the deep, and throw the nets in. In other words, he had to act on what Jesus said. And when they had done what Jesus said, they brought in such a haul of fish that the boat almost sank and their partners had to come out and help bring that in. We've talked about this before because we forget who God is that gave us His Word. Psalm 33. Turn there quickly. Psalm 33. 
This is good. Verse 6. By the word, that's what we're talking about. By the word of the Lord, Lord, the heavens were made. So let me ask you this. What's a boatload of fish to a God who with His words created the universe? If the stars and all their billions are out there because He simply said, let there be, how is causing fish to come in the middle of the day where they weren't there a little while ago any kind of problem for God? See, you look at those circumstances, they look overwhelming to you, but you forget who the God is that told you that by the stripes of Jesus, you're healed. You look at that, 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 you look at the balance in your checkbook, and you look at the fact you're having trouble getting a job. You look at all these circumstances, and yet, who is the God that said, I will supply all your needs according to my riches and glory by Christ Jesus? Uh, Hebrews 13.5 says, to, to, to not love money, not chase after money, because I will never leave you forsaken or leave you utterly downcast. That word in the Greek is double negative. I will never, no, I will never. In English, a double negative reverses it. But in Greek, a double negative emphasizes it. Look at the Amplified sometime. It says, I will never, no, I will never, no, I'll never, ever, ever leave you downcast and utterly forsaken. And that's talking in a context of your needs being taken care of. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all the things you need. That's God's word. will be added unto you. And so here we see, the, but the God who's given His word is the God who created the heavens with His word. That's why Jesus starts these famous verses in Matthew and Mark 11 with have faith in God. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of His mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. He let all the earth, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. So when Jesus stood in that boat and said, Peter, go out in the deep and throw your nets down, and pull in a catch of fish. That's the same God speaking who said, declared, and all the heavens came into existence. I share with you last week, because it's His creation, it has to obey Him. It's under His authority because it came into existence by His words. The only thing He ever created by His words that doesn't obey Him instantly is man. So when you stand on God's Word in spite of those circumstances screaming at you, and you agree with that Word and you declare that Word because you believe it in your heart, then what happens is the power of God that created the universe is flowing through you against those circumstances. It's just like the giant and David. You should look at those circumstances and say, who are you to stand against the Word of the living God? What are you to stand against the healing of my body? What are you? The centurion in Matthew chapter 5, he had a hold of this, and he wasn't a Jew. He didn't, understand. He didn't have a covenant with God. He comes up to him and says, Master of my servants lying home, struggling, suffering deeply. And Jesus said, I'll come and heal him. And he says, no, no, I wasn't what I was going to ask you to do. He says, I'm not worthy for you to come into my house, and it's not necessary. All you've got to do is say the word here, and my servant will be healed over there. Why do I know that? Because I recognize that like me, you're someone under authority and in authority. And because you're under His authority, therefore you're in His authority, His authority 
will flow through you to my servant over there. And Jesus stops everybody. And he turns to the religious leaders, he turns to his disciples, all of whom were Jews. And he said, I've not seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. He called it great faith. I don't remember him ever saying to Peter, that was great faith. I don't remember him saying to any of his disciples, great faith. He would say things to them as, why did you doubt? And Peter had walked on water. Why did you quit? Why did you stop trusting in what I said and started trusting in what you saw? Because what did what you saw, the wind and the waves, have to do with what I said? I said, come. I said, walk on the water. What's that got to do? What does the storm have to do with what I told you to do? There's greater authority in my word than in those storms. And the proof of it is he told the storm to be quiet, and it was. These are not just nice Bible stories for us to look at and say, wasn't it blessed time for those disciples to be in? These stories are in our Bible for our sake. That we would take God's Word in the midst of the circumstances and make the same choice Jesus made, make the same choice David made, make the same choice Peter made, and to stand on that Word no matter what the circumstances look like, and you do that as an act of your will. Now understand this. It's a... It's something you learn to do. So you may step out to do it and the circumstances just seem like they're overwhelming you and you cave in. Don't quit. Get back up again. Dust yourself off. How, how did you learn to walk? Did you walk? You know, none of our children walked perfectly the first time. You know, they fell down, but we picked them back up, dusted them off. And what do we say to them? I didn't think you'd ever make it. No. What do we say to them? That was great. Now let's try it again. And we set them back up again and we come out and we say, all right, come on, come on, come on, come on. You can do it. You can do it. And that's what God's doing to you today. He's saying, yeah, I've seen you stumble. I've seen you fall and you've gotten discouraged, but I want to pick you up today. Pick you up under the armpits and you know, brush you off like, get a smile on your face again. Okay, now, now, now listen to this. Come to Daddy. Don't look around you. Just come. See, that's what we do. I got down in front of them. I said, come to me. Keep your eyes on me. Don't look at the chairs. Don't look at what you're doing. Just keep your eyes on me. And sooner than later, they found themselves walking where they didn't think they could do that because they had their eyes on Daddy. Get your eyes on Daddy and what Daddy said and off the circumstances and watch what he'll do. Malachi chapter 3, God says, come Test me and prove me and see if I won't do what my word says. But you must not doubt in your heart. You must believe. You can't do it because I said so. You've got to go to God's word and find the promise for yourself. And then you step out on that promise yourself. And if you fall and get dirty, get up again and go back at it again and go back at it again. Because God's word never fails.